what I would like to do with you tonight is take uh, 40, 45 minutes and draw out the implication of this morning's message and give five or six reasons for why I believe it's true, in addition to the one that it follows from the truths that I tried to make plain this morning. And the implication is that if God's glory and our gain are not on a collision course, and if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, then if you love the glory of God, you cannot be indifferent to the pursuit of your own satisfaction. It becomes your highest duty. So you must all become hedonists. You must make the pursuit of pleasure your lifelong passion. And anybody who tells you that this is a, a wrecking of morality, because Immanuel Kant said so, should read their Bibles. At least as much as they read Mr. Kant. So that's my thesis tonight. That you should all, for the sake of the glory of God, pursue your maximum pleasures in him. And join him, therefore, in his global enterprise of magnifying himself among the nations. Because, as you will discover before we're done, if you haven't already thought it through for yourself, your joy in God expands as it extends to draw others into it. Give you a lot of illustrations of that from your own life. Just think it through. So that's what we're about tonight. And I have six reasons here for why you should believe what I just said, and be about it, and so I'm on a quest to persuade you, number one, we should pursue our own joy in God because God is breathtaking, and man, every one of them, all over the world, in every people and tongue and tribe and nation, every person has, as C.S. Lewis said, an inconsolable longing in their heart for this breathtaking God. Augustine said it, Lewis said it, you probably said it, that there is something in every human being that is God-shaped, and we have built all kinds of strange angularities about it and tried to fit computer games and sex and drugs and good performance on tests and friendship and spouses and careers into that hole and they just rattle around and do a lot of damage. They do not fill it up. 
There is a breathtaking God out there, and he is designed, because he designed us, to fill that void. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. The fall of 1968, I came back up here to Wheaton after I had um, graduated in the June to bring my fiance back to school. He had another semester to go. Noel, who's going to speak to the women who want to go over to Williston later. And I was heading for Fuller Seminary in my old hatchback gold and 65 Mustang, and uh, drove straight through from Wheaton to Pasadena, California. Because when you feel as bad as I felt leaving her behind, what's the point in stopping? Get it all done, fast, all 2,500 miles or whatever. But I did have to buy gas, and I had to go to the bathroom. So I stopped on the top of a mountain in Utah. And the rest stop, and there were lights in the rest stop, and I decided to go up a hill away from the lights, two o'clock in the morning or something like that, and I walked up there to the top of the mountain, and I looked up into the sky, and I had never seen anything like that before. There were no dark spaces between the stars. It was a sheet of white. It wasn't a cloud. And and I understood for the first time what the Milky Way is. I've never seen it before. Like and my soul was so drawn up out of me with the bigness of that moment that I have never forgotten. It touched me at a level that was so profound, so spiritual. I think that must have been what Psalm 19 was meant to say. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Listen. Kierkegaard had a parable about riding in a carriage out into the night. Remember the parable of the carriage? And it had lamps on the carriage. And as he looked up, he saw nothing because the light on the carriage blotted it out. And he said, that's the way virtually everybody lives their life. We've got these little lamps we've lit. They're so pretty. They're so effective. And they blot out everything glory because they're so near and so small. And we need to get away from the littleness of our lives. Now, the point of that little story is to say, if the heavens have that effect on me, how much more will God if I see God? 1971, Noel and I were married now for three years almost, and we were on our way back having graduated, and we decided to drive up to Oregon, visit Steve Talbot, friend from college, and then drive across like this 
down through Wheaton, visit some friends, and to South Carolina. And this time, driving across Montana, there are no, well, they're not safe. Montana's a pretty flat state in parts of it anyway. And we stopped to get some gas in a very, very, very flat place. And I got out of the car while, back in those days, they filled the car for you. And I walked away a little bit and looked out over, not this time up into the mountain, but over the flattest land I've ever seen in my life that went on forever. There were no mountains and there was no ocean and there was no end. It was just land, flat as far as you could see. And it was so far and so clear that there were four layers of clouds. One layer was blowing like this, and another like this, and another like this. And the same thing happened. I felt just drawn out into bigness. 1978, we had two little kids by this time. We went to the Grand Canyon, and the same thing happened. Three times in my life, I I had this memory. I stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and just stood there, feeling myself like I was going to explode with bigness. Now, those have all been points for me where lessons have landed on me of what I've been trying to teach biblically. Namely, the love of God toward us is not God's making much of us, but God's enabling us to have the capacity to feel what it's like to make much of him and be drawn out into his bigness. And this is the lesson. Nobody goes to stand on the edge of Grand Canyon to enhance their self-esteem. Do they? Yet they go. They go. They leave their therapist behind, who's, not every therapist does this, but by and large, the American gospel is found in the room with the therapist, trying desperately to help you feel good about yourself, because how significant you are and how great you are, how worthy you are. That's the gospel of America. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon for that. We go to the Grand Canyon. We go to the top of mountains in Utah. We go to the flat places of the earth. We even try to do it with cinemagraphic productions. We try to do it with big, glossy books on our coffee tables. We try to do it because there is something in us that is not satisfied with being told how good we are. We want to be drawn out into something that is not us, that's huge and magnificent and great and glorious. And at those moments we feel, if I could be caught up into this, if I could have a soul big enough to encompass this, I would be infinitely satisfied. God is breathtaking. And you should pursue that with all your might. That's point number one. And the way it relates to missions, by the way, is that that is true of every human being you will meet in every tribe, 
in the world. I don't care what culture they're in. I don't care what language they speak. They are created for God, and therefore there is that kind of passion and desire in them for this great God, and you, in missiologically sensitive ways, can tap into that and win them. Reason number two, you should devote yourself to pursuing joy in God, is that the Bible commands you to pursue your joy. I got a, I was asked to do a seminar with a, a person recently on motivation and mission, and I entitled the seminar something like, I don't know what, the pursuit of joy, uh, in God for the sake of missions or something like that. And this person wrote that and said, I don't like the title because I don't think, uh, we do missions out of the pursuit of joy. I think we should, uh, you know, Dr. Piper knows as well as I do, uh, we should do things whether we'd like to or not. It's, a, the duty of of us to obey God and not pursue our joy. <laughs> How am I ever going to do a seminar with this person? Because, well, here's the problem with that response. If you juxtapose duty to delight and make them at odds, you're just not asking a simple question. What if it's your duty to delight? Which it is, because the Bible says so. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command. So now you can't, it's a, it's a category confusion, you philosophy student. It's a category confusion to say you should choose duty, not delight. It's like saying you should choose obedience, not love. Wait a minute. Love is obedience. Right. So is delight. Just read the commandments of the Bible. They're all over the place. Now, where are we here? i got to locate myself on campus and take you back to 1967. That's Blanchard, right? Okay, on the first floor of Blanchard, this end, you walk in, take a left before they gutted the thing. Um, there was a room there, and I had a class on apologetics from Millard Erickson. 1967, and we read four contemporary apologetic works, and one of the contemporary apologetics work in that day was Situation Ethics by Joseph Fletcher. And in that class, and in that book, Joseph Fletcher argued like this. He said, we know that love cannot be essentially affectional or emotional. It has to be volitional and relate to decisions you make, not things you feel. Reason? We are commanded to love. And you can't command the affections. You can only command volition. Therefore, love must be volitional, not affectional. Close case. He wasn't into quoting scripture. And as a as a 20-year-old junior, I think I was, I'm not sure, I was, I, I was reading this book, and I didn't know a lot of theology. I just had grown up reading my Bible as a teenager and underlining and trying to understand as I could. And I just kept saying to myself, something's not right here. This sounds philosophically 
sophisticated and kind of compelling, but it doesn't fit. There's something wrong here. And you know what's wrong? There are hundreds of commands in the Bible addressed to the emotion. <laughs> it's so simple. Read your Bible. So if you, I just want to make a little parenthetical exhortation to all of you Wheaton students for how to do serious philosophy and theology. Don't bring your own rationalizations about what must be because of certain syllogisms you've worked out in your head, like Um, love is commanded. That's premise number one. Premise number two, you can only command volition. Premise number two, conclusion, according to Aristotle, now, therefore, love can only be a volition. Don't bring those man-made things to the Bible saying, you can't mean what you say. Do it exactly the opposite. Go to the Bible, and as much as lies within you, draw out meaning there, and then think your way out into philosophy, faith-seeking understanding. You will be far deeper. The Bible says, I love thy law. I love thy law. It makes me wiser than my teachers. And I have seen it proven true over and over again. I think the best teachers on this campus know that. And will encourage you not to be proof texters, not to be superficial text slingers, opposing anti-intellectually any thought that originates from a pagan. Let us plunder the Egyptians. Like Augustine said, well, when you dine with the devil, use a long spoon, as Os Guinness says, but let us not let him write the recipe. God wrote the recipe. I'm getting off track here now. I'm going to lose my, my place. The Bible the, the problem with Joseph Fletcher is not only had he not read his Bible, but he was an Armenian. The fundamental thesis of Arminianism is you must have the ability to do what you're told to do. And the fundamental preface of, premise of Calvinism is you're not able to do what you're told to do. You need God. That's the difference between those two views of life. The Bible commands you to do what you cannot do on almost every page. It commands the emotions everywhere. Emotions, emotions, emotions are commanded by the Lord. We'll get to that in just a minute. That is, details are specific. In fact, 
I'm, I'm over, I'm putting together number two and number three. I said I was on number two. You're commanded to pursue your joy. Delight yourself in the Lord, for example. Now I'm on number three. Doesn't this make too much of emotions? And a lot of people, they hear me talk and they say, whoa, you're saying now devote your whole life to pursuing your happiness or your pleasure or your satisfaction. Doesn't that elevate emotions or affections way out of proportion to what they should be in the Bible? And I answer no, because the Bible makes them essential. We're commanded not to covet a desire for what we ought not to have. We're commanded to be content. That's a feeling. We're commanded to bear no grudges. We're commanded to love one another earnestly from the heart. Romans 12. We're commanded to love with brotherly affection, not just with will. We're commanded to rejoice, Psalm 102. We're commanded to hope, Psalm 42.5. We're commanded to fear, Luke 12.5. We're commanded to be at peace in ourselves, Romans 5.1. We're commanded to be zealous, Romans 12.11. We're commanded to weep with those who weep, Romans 12. We're commanded to desire the sincere spiritual milk of the word, 1 Peter 2. We're commanded to be tenderhearted. We're commanded to be grateful. Try that on your kids at Christmas when he gets a pair of black socks from his grandmother. Say thank you. Well, of course he can say thank you, but he can't feel gratitude if he doesn't feel gratitude. Therefore, to command gratitude when you don't feel gratitude, what are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. Despair of yourself and fall on your face in desperate need of grace. That's what you're going to do. All over the Bible, these things are commanded. Brokenness, gratitude, loneliness. Which means, I can't produce those things. You tell me to be happy when I'm not happy, what am I going to do? You tell me to feel hope when I'm not hopeful, what am I going to do? Tell me to feel grateful, tell me to weep when I don't feel any compassion for anybody, what am I going to do? Be born again. How does a child decide to do that? You can tell I'm a Calvinist, and I am because I cannot escape the implications of these things in the Scriptures. If the Bible tells you tonight to rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice, and you don't feel any joy, here are the steps. Number one, do not say Emotions are not essential. I have decided for Jesus, and that's all that counts. Don't say that. You may not be born again. To decide requires no transformation. Decisions for Jesus require no transformation. Pagans can will to jump on a grenade and many other strange things. What, what transforms is the power of the Holy Spirit. Faith is more than a decision to sign a card or pray a prayer or do a thing. It is to be 
changed. Faith has love and affection for God as its core. Have you ever wonder why in the last, next to last verse in 1 Corinthians 16, he says that those who do not love the Lord be accursed. Ever shock you who believe in justification by faith alone? He didn't say let those who have no faith be accursed. He let he said let those who do not love the Lord be anathema. If justification by faith is true, which it absolutely is, love must be an essential component of faith, which it is. We have stripped down faith to such an unbelievably manageable American utilitarian means to get signatures on the beach that there are many unregenerate people in Africa. Don't say they are unessential. Say they are essential and then repent. So if you leave tonight, you heard this message, you're walking home in the dark, you're not feeling especially joyful in God, you say, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's wrong with my heart. I'm sorry that I'm so cool, I'm so lukewarm, and I'm frightened. I don't know what it is about. And then you cry for help. Oh, God, help me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Isn't it a comfort that the psalmist prayed that way? I take such comfort in my own ups and downs of emotion that the psalmist prayed that way. Well, that's reason number three. Emotions are not uh, secondary. They're not uh, icing on the cake. They are part of the cake. Reason number four for why you should pursue your joy in God relentlessly, always, and join him in his self-glorifying mission in the world is that to do this will combat boasting and self-pity. It will combat boasting and self-pity. If, if you say to God, I am empty and I need fullness from you. I am bankrupt and I need riches from you. I am weak and I need strength from you. I am hungry and I need food from you. I am thirsty and I need drink from you, and you are my only hope. That is not pride, pride talking. And that's the way a Christian hedonist talks. I want food. I want drink. I want strength. I want help. I want treasure. I want joy. I want satisfaction. I want gain, and I want it in you. Come, give, fill. That's hedonism, through and through. And it's not proud. It's not proud. Empty. Helpless, hopeless, apart from God. So ironically, you know, people people ask me, oh, don't you, doesn't this hedonism 
create great self-centeredness? I say, exactly the opposite. It creates great God-centeredness. Because we're looking for this fullness outside ourselves. We've looked enough within. We're so sick of looking within and finding brokenness and emptiness and sinfulness. We've despaired of ourselves. And yet we still want to be happy. We want satisfaction. And so we look outside of ourselves and say, God, you're our only hope. You're the only way that I could ever survive in this world, in this ministry, through death. Come, fill, satisfy, be my all in all. That's the way a hedonist talks, a Christian hedonist, and that is not pride. It's the opposite of pride. Pride is when you go to God as a benefactor rather than a beneficiary and say, I have these many gifts here. I've been at Wheaton and I've got this education. I've got this degree. Uh, position me so that I can serve you, blah, blah, blah. Be poor in spirit. Be hungry. And you will not be proud. I love, I love most contemporary worship because there's so much of that in it. There's so much hunger in it. So much longing for God. Self-pity is the flip side of pride. It's the form that pride takes in the heart of the weak. Boasting is the form that pride takes in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the form that pride takes in the heart of the weak. Self-pity is what you feel when you have been denied a privilege you feel like you deserve. And this old thing, your wife didn't treat you the way you should, or... Some teacher didn't recognize you were there, or, hmm, I feel so bad inside. We, we live in a, we live in an utterly victim mentality age. Where, where, where? Everywhere. We are the whiningest nation, generation I've ever seen. It's always somebody else's fault. And I have every right to bellyache and sue and be litigious and whine and feel sorry for myself. Grow up. Get a grip. You know, that's what you people need to be told. My, I'm the oldest baby boomer in the world. Born in January of 1946. They don't get any older than me. And our generation was sort of the beginning of the whining. And it just goes forward with great strength across the nation. Wah, wah, wah. My, there's my parents, the way they brought me up. It's this daycare center. It's the church. It's the whatever. And I'm just, hmm. Now, Christian hedonism is the remedy for that. Why? I'll tell you, just use a biblical story. Remember the story of the rich young man? He comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me, you'll have riches in heaven, treasure in heaven. And he's so rich, he can't do it. He loves his money so much, he can't love Jesus. So he walks away, and Jesus says, it's hard for rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples takes their breath away. Well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, 
Uh, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So God has the capacity to change your values around so that you can give everything away and follow Jesus. Then Peter, the precursor of the whining generation, says, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What about us? Now, the reason I use that tone of voice, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm missing it here, is because of the way Jesus responds to him. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, nobody has left mother or father or brothers or sisters or lands or children or houses for my name's sake and the gospel who will not receive back in this age a hundredfold mothers, lands, and houses, and brothers, and sisters with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What, what was he saying? He was saying, Peter, if you feel a millimeter of self-pity because you've left everything and chosen me, you don't understand who I am. There is no sacrifice in this trade. I am greatly offended and dishonored by your thinking that to leave all those people and all those things just to get the Son of God is a bad deal. I'm offended. And people who feel sorry for themselves need to be, though no... Let's not be excessively critical here. No person is going to say to them, probably in the 20th century, quit feeling sorry for yourself. You're offending God by your self-pity. God is infinitely valuable. I count everything as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the end of self-pity, folks. That's the end of self-pity. I don't care if they cut your throat. It's the end of self-pity. Or if you lose all your children or all your house or you all have cancer before the year's over, there is no loss in the end if you've got Jesus. Now, when all is, what was that last line? When it's all over, Jesus is going to be my song. When it's all over, when it's all over and everybody's dead and you outlive all your friends and you're 94, slumped over in the fourth floor of Augustana Home, drooling, and nobody comes visit you anymore, and you've got Jesus, you've got the universe. That's what 1 Corinthians 3, 20 and 21 says. Don't boast of men, because in me... You have everything. So, to be a Christian hedonist, that is to find your satisfaction in Jesus, takes away boasting and takes away self-pity. Reason number five. For why you should pursue your own joy in God for the rest of your life with all your might and join him in his great global enterprise of self-glorification. 
Reason number five is that it promotes genuine love. Now that one required the most thought for me when I wrote the book Desiring God. Because the Bible says love seeks not its own. And I'm telling you all to seek your own happiness with everything that lies within you. Love seeks not its own, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. I don't think that text needs love does not seek joy in loving. I don't think that's what that text means. Because Micah, what, 6, 8, hero, man, what does God require of you but to do justice? Help me. Love and walk humbly with your God. So the middle one is love mercy. Don't just do mercy. Love doing mercy. Enjoy serving others. Let me ask you this question, very existential question. If you're in the hospital and a friend or a pastor comes to visit you, do you feel more loved if he comes begrudgingly or joyfully? If you're lying there and you open your eyes and the pastor is standing over you and you say, oh, you didn't have to drive all the way down here, Pastor John. And I say, well, I know I didn't, but I'm a pastor and you're supposed to if you're pastor. It's my duty. In other words, you all laugh because evidently you don't think duty is a good motivation. You wouldn't laugh, probably, if I, if, if that person opened his eyes and saw me and said, Oh, Pastor John, you drove all the way down here, you have to do that. And I said, I enjoy sharing God with people in gospel. It gives me great pleasure to uh, come and be with you and delight in God and encourage your faith. I came because I wanted to come. I'm a hedonist. Not a person in a million would take offense at that answer. Why? Because you feel more loved. There is no contradiction. Mark this. Your experience is a better teacher here probably than your own philosophical reflection. There is no contradiction between pursuing your joy in caring for others and their feeling loved by you. That you happen to come there for your joy in their good is no offense. In fact, it deepens your character. They, 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 they marvel that you're the kind of person who could find pleasure in love. It's an amazing thing how we can work ourselves up against the scriptures with all kinds of strange things. Acts 20, 35 is a very important verse here. About, uh, it says, um, quoting Jesus, Paul 
comes to the end of his time with the elders there on the beach in uh, Miletus. And he says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. More blessed to give than to receive. You know what the key word in that verse is? To really wallop you? It's the word remember. You know why? Because as I was writing my dissertation over in Germany on the love command, love your enemies, I read so much ethical, almost used an expletive, uh, bad stuff, that I got so tired of reading things like, well, yes, uh, there is reward in the Christian life, but you must keep it out of your mind lest it contaminate good emotion, good motives. Don't love for the sake of reward of any kind. Love because it's right to love. Now, again, you go to the Bible and you read Acts 20, 35, where he says, remember. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Don't put it out of your mind as though it's a contaminating influence to remember that when you give, you get blessed. Remember it. Remember it. Remember it. When you're heading for the hospital, your playtime with your kids has been interrupted, you're tired and exhausted, and somebody's in a crisis at the hospital, and you don't feel like going, remember it. Preach it to yourself. It is more blessed blessed to give until this unsanctified power in you is subdued and you're able to walk into that room again rejoicing that you have the awesome privilege of resting in God and bringing that rest to other people. And what turns it into such effective, powerful love is that suppose the person were a little bit philosophically oriented in their hospital bed and said, well, now, you just said it makes you happy to come down here. Um, why should why should that make me feel good? Because you're just coming for you. I think the answer should be, Because if I didn't delight in God more than I delight in you, and if I didn't have the kind of God who brought me deep satisfaction in extending him and love to others, I have nothing to give you. It's precisely because I love God more than you and God satisfies me and enlarges my satisfaction in coming to you, that I have something worthwhile to give you, namely joining me in being so satisfied in God. Now, that will only make sense to people who have broken free from the gospel of self-esteem. Because what that person who asked that little philosophical question really wanted you to say is, would you please say something that makes me feel good about me? And if that's what they're asking, you don't have good news for them. 
You want to free them from the bondage of that and cause them to realize they might die any day, and then what? If God isn't their all, if they can't say to die is gain because to die is to get Jesus, then what difference does it make how good they feel about themselves in those last hours before they need to judge? There are answers to those things. So it really does promote love. I promise you it does. Last reason. And then I'm done. Another minute or so. This one is just a repetition of the morning's message. Um, you should pursue your joy in God because it glorifies God. It glorifies God. How do you glorify an all-sufficient, all-satisfying fountain? If you're, if there's a spring in the mountain and it is overflowing with the most sweet, all-satisfying, life-giving water, how do you glorify it? By going down into the valley and taking your buckets of Christian service and filling up the buckets from some river and hauling them up and say, here, may I be of service spring, and dumping those muddy buckets into the spring. Served you. I magnified you because I sacrificed. I sweat. I sweat to get that bucket up here. And the spring would say, thank you anyway. I have all the water I need. You want to glorify me? You want to magnify me? Drop your buckets. I'm telling you tonight, folks. Would you drop your buckets, Wheaton students? Just drop your buckets. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Fall on your face at the fountain and put your mouth in the water and drink. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat. What is good? Broke, you're broke, you're thirsty, you're hungry. You glorify an all-satisfying fountain by dropping all your buckets, falling on your face, drinking, lifting up your face and saying, if you're going to say now in two minutes, that's worship. And then in the strength which that supplies, you go back down to the valley and tell everybody about the spring. That's right. And uh, let me just say that when we're done singing, and those of you who go, who need to go, I'll be happy to stay and we'll have a question and answer time for a while. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I know that I preach beyond my life, and I confess that openly. I have deep seasons of discouragement in my life where I'm not as happy as I ought to be in you. And I do feel self-pity from time to time. And I do get angry. And I feel pride. And I wrestle with all the same sins that these friends do. So woe, woe to me if I present myself here as an embodiment of this teaching in any kind of perfection. But Lord, we together tonight have seen enough biblical truth, I believe, that we now know where we're heading. We now know that missions is not the mere sacrificial, duty-laden effort to work for you among the nations. It is the joyful pursuit of the maximum experience of satisfaction in you as we join your global cause of glorifying your name.